This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod, Public Safety and Crime, How Long Before Vancouver Hires 100 New Police Officers and 100 New Mental Health Nurses. We'll have the latest. Plus, from drought to farm shutting down, we look at the Christmas tree shortage in BC. And professional wrestler Kyle O'Reilly joins us and talks about his career in the squared circle and living with diabetes. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on City Hall for a moment, in this case, Vancouver City Hall. Now, as you know, so much of the debate during the last municipal election centered around crime and public safety. Ken Sims, ABC Slate, were elected, uh, some would say, based on a promise to hire 100 new police officers and 100 new mental health nurses. Joining me now to discuss the issue is ABC Council Lisa Dominato. We want to get a sense of how long this process would take and what it would look like. Uh, Lisa, of course, was re-elected as well. Lisa Dominato, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so walk me through. This was a conversation that occurred yesterday in Council. Where are we are, where are we in regards to this plan in regards to it moving forward? Yeah, so this, as you noted, fulfills a campaign commitment that ABC Vancouver made around requisitioning and hiring 100 mental health nurses, 100 police officers. And so what we're advancing through emotion right now is support for uh, CAR 8788, the mental health cars, the assertive community treatment teams, and the assertive outreach teams. And what we've done is we've engaged with Vancouver Coastal Health and Vancouver Police Department, and what they've said to us is what's critical is to have a block of funding allocated so they can begin the requisitioning and hiring of these essential staff. So uh, and last night, well, that motion was about setting aside those funds then to, to begin that requisition? Yes, that's exactly it. So we haven't finished the business on that motion. Uh, the debate will be next week, but uh, essentially that's what the motion does is it seeks to set aside uh, that target, that funding, so that VPD and VCH can start taking the steps necessary to uh, hire those staff. And do you have a, a sense of what those, how much the, the money would be at this particular point, at this initial stage? Yeah, so at this stage, what we're, we're recommending is is a block funding of $4.5 million, uh, towards the VPD and $1.5 million towards VCH. And I've been asked about the disparity there, and it is likely largely around the fact that uh, VPD can ramp up a little bit more quickly in terms of hiring and recruiting those police officers. Um, but the commitment that we've made and we intend to fulfill is the 100 uh, mental health nurses and 100 police officers. Uh, and the money that you've just mentioned, $4.5 million for the, the VPD and one point five for the Vancouver Coastal Health, how many uh, individuals or full-time equivalent would you be hiring for those, both of those respective positions with the funds, the, these initial funds? Yeah, well, ultimately that'll be through VPD and, and DCH, but the initial costing was roughed out based on roughly $100,000 per FEE. But again, hiring will take t- uh, place at different times. So for instance, VPD may bring, bring on officers in, in, in June and then again in September. So it's going to vary depending on when those staff are brought on and hired. 
But again, uh, the commitment is there that we intend to support 100 officers, 100 mental health nurses in the system. I mean, it's fair to say uh, the desire is to phase this in, not slowly, but over time. It's not going to happen in one fiscal year. Well, certainly, and this is the first step. As you know, this is our very first budget. We have several budgets ahead of us, um, but this is the first step to get this this programming in place. And we heard very clearly when we were out on the doorsteps and when we were out campaigning that there was urgency around this. And what the, this does is it actually builds on some proven programs that are already in place with CAR 788 as well as the ACT and AOT teams. Uh, but it, it, it's really uh, going to require collaboration. Uh, we're very much committed to also having conversations with the provincial government and the federal governments uh, around funding around these areas as well. Is it fair to say that you want to phase this in over four years, or, do, or is there a desire to, to bring this in, in in a couple of years, the full, the full hiring, the 100 police officers, 100 mental health nurses? Certainly faster than the four years. No, we're moving more quickly than that, for sure. Where will this money come from? Well, we're just beginning our budget deliberations. Uh, at, at this point, our motion has set out that um, uh, on a temporary basis, it would come from our stabilization reserve. But we'll be starting on budget discussions over the next couple of months, and uh, they'll be sorted through uh, through that budget process. So you think you can find it within the present budget? There is no need to raise taxes. We believe we can find it within the existing budget, and, and as I said, we're also entertaining conversations uh, with the provincial government and federal government to see where how we might secure some uh, provincial and federal dollars as well. Uh, how do you see what you're doing with uh, the hiring of the mental health nurses and the 100 officers? How do you think this will fit in with uh, uh, tomorrow uh, with the swearing-in of uh, Premier David Eby. Uh, Any sense of how you would be working with the province and dealing with some of these issues? They are interconnected, not only just policing and mental health nurses, but the courts. Uh, Any sense of how you'll be working with the province to deal with with the broader challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I think there is an appetite for this discussion at the provincial level. We've been hearing uh, Premier-elect E.B. talking about, for example, uh, recently the downtown east side. Uh, but I think there's a, a universal recognition that we have some very complex issues facing not only the city of Vancouver, but we're hearing it from uh, municipalities around the province, uh, whether it be Victoria, Kelowna, Prince George. And so um, our conversations have been positive to date and we're feeling really encouraged. And so I think, uh, you know, it'll be a positive working relationship going forward. Do you think the, the area needs a czar to, to sort of organize, to, to maintain, to be accountable for uh, the overarching needs in and around the downtown east side? Because, I mean, there's more challenges beyond the downtown east side. And I understand that uh, public safety and crime impacts people throughout the city. But in regards to working with the province, uh, do you think the city needs uh, one individual that can sort of uh, sort of streamline all that work that needs to be done from the province with the city and even the federal government to a certain degree as well? I do think there needs to be more oversight. Um, and and uh, in my first term, I brought forward a motion that was looking at how do we better coordinate our services, not not just in the downtown east side, but look at the systemic issues and some of the silos that start to take place. And you've been in, served in government, you know how it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we better coordinate uh, the services and programming uh, to respond to the needs of residents? And so um, I think there needs to be uh, more oversight and accountability. 
Councillor Dominato, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you on this issue uh, again, because I'm sure it'll be coming up many, many times, whether it's a budgetary issue or just getting uh, more boots on the ground. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. All Thanks, right. Vancouver is adopting a definition of anti-Semitism that many countries and provinces have embraced, but some human rights and civil liberties groups still oppose arguing it would suppress free speech. Now, Council voted 6-1 yesterday to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism as an expression of hatred towards Jews, their property, religious institutions, and community facilities through both rhetorical and physical manifestations. Now, many have said implementing the non-legally binding term will help protect Vancouver's Jewish community from the discrimination they face uh, in our country at times. Now, 16 other uh, countries, plus Ontario, New Brunswick, and Manitoba, have recently adopted the definition. But other uh, human rights groups oppose uh, that, in fact, the BC's First Nations leaders were Advising Vancouver, were advising Vancouver against adopting the definition, saying it its inclusion will water down the city's uh, current political stance against discrimination, as it conflates criticism of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism, and thereby it limits freedom of expression and a right to public protest. Well, it was an interesting conversation, long conversation at yesterday's uh, council meeting. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Ezra, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be with you. So uh, regarding this uh, motion last night, why was it important for the City Council, in your mind, to adopt this motion? That's a great question. Uh, you know, we believe that tools like the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, these are, these are the educational tools that we want governments to be adopting so that they can help to their uh, the the government itself to to better understand how anti-Semitism uh, emerges, what it looks like, how it feels to people, uh, and it makes for a more compassionate, accepting, and uh, loving city. Uh, some would say that when it comes to the definition itself, it mm-hmm. conflates criticism of Israel. That even a criticism of Israel and its politics could be seen as anti-Semitism when in a democracy it, it also talks, it's about free speech and this type of motion could severely chill that very conversation. What do you say to that argument? You know, I, I really do appreciate uh, people's uh, concern around this. Obviously, none of us want to create a society in which uh, the open and free expression of, of people when they're trying to stand up for the things that they believe in are somehow uh, diminished or, or made to be seen in the light that, that they aren't. Uh, actually, the, the, the definition itself uh, has within it uh, protections for this. Uh, you know, it's actually quoted right from the the definition and from the from from IRA itself is is criticism of Israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded for anti, as anti-semitism so it actually puts in protections to ensure that people have that ability and that's why this is a consensus definition uh, this discussion had been had over years and years and years because we wanted to make sure uh, as a community that we were still leaving space for legitimate uh, debate and and legitimate criticism around government policies uh, in the state of Israel or anywhere else that that do not uh, align with uh, where people people's personal beliefs are. Uh, shouldn't the focus be on education because the community does deal with uh, racism, anti-Semitism, 
um, because that's where things are fundamentally need to be dealt with rather than, let's say, a city hall motion. Why not put our energies into that or uh, strengthening our provincial or even federal laws to deal with anti-Semitism and discrimination? Uh, some would argue, isn't that where the attention should be focused on rather than just a city hall motion? It's an excellent question. You know, I don't think there's an either-or uh, situation here. We want to be hidden every place that we can. If if your community, like our community, you know, were was targeted in the way that I think many of our minority communities are, we want to make sure we put every tool out there. Of course we want to educate, and this is a tool to educate, uh, both within the governmental structure and then outside in the community and raising awareness about, if you say this, then, then it, may, it may make a, a Jewish person feel as though they're being discriminated against, and therefore we want to have a greater sensitivity around that. We do want to strengthen laws. This is not one of those situations. This is not obviously a legal framework. This is an educational tool uh, that we think is really important for for people, universities, uh, um, city governments, uh, provincial governments, our our premier's office uh, endorsed this, our national government has has adopted IRA, uh, many provinces have, and, and other countries across the world as a, as another step to be taken in this journey. And uh, I don't believe that this is a, uh, we, we passed this and now we've solved anti-Semitism. I think that we've passed this and we have another tool to work with. And uh, I'm thrilled that we're, we're doing that, but uh, we still have a lot more work to do. Oh, it has the resolution, you, you want to have this resolution uh, adopted by British Columbia as well, am I correct? You know, I think that we are working through the province. We're working through a number of different uh, avenues. We'd like it to be adopted anywhere where there is a, a government or an institution that wants to better understand and uh, address uh, anti-Semitism within its, within its midst. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vancouver is one municipality out of 21 uh, in Metro Vancouver. Would you be focusing on other municipalities as well? Uh, significant population in places like Surrey, uh, many other communities as well. Vancouver is one. Are you looking to uh, to speak to some of those communities of mayors and councillors to adopt a similar um, motion? Well, Jess, this took this took us three, over three years to do here. So, uh, you're, you're, you've I've got my work cut out for me uh, in in this one. I, I would say I invite any communities uh, around around the Lower Mainland that are interested in tackling this issue uh, to uh, you know to start to educate themselves around IRA. We think it's a great tool, and uh, we think that it's uh, obviously not a cure all, but it, it helps us move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Well, Ezra, I, I I think it's a very important issue to discuss, and I've always. Uh, enjoyed our conversations, and I thank you today mm-hmm. uh, to have this as well. It's an, and it's a conversation that continues and that needs to happen on a, a continuous basis as well. And uh, as I've said to you many times, you're always welcome on this show, and look forward to having uh, this chat with you again as well. Thank you so much for your time today. No, I appreciate you and uh, everything that you're doing, and I just want to thank uh, really the councillors that came forward on this, and uh, you know the mayor who really uh, kept his kept his promise and pushed through on on these things. This has been a long journey, and I, I also want to say that uh, every single councillor in that room, uh, no matter if they abstained or voted for this or or voted against this, uh, you know, committed themselves to fighting anti-Semitism, and that that obviously means the world to us. Ezra, thank you so much for your time. All right, be well. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. 
So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all... It's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. David Eby will be sworn in as BC's 37th Premier tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Mr. Eby is about to take on the most difficult job of his career. Uh, but who is he and what are his priorities? Well, our next guest recently published a profile of Mr. E.B. and spent some time with his family for for a column he uh, ran in the business of Vancouver. I highly recommend you check it out. Rob Shaw is also a political correspondent for Czech News. He joins us now. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jeff. Uh, first of all, I guess uh, the question asks, what was it like spending time with Mr. E.B. and his family? Uh, you know, you, you get a sense of a, a family dynamic sometimes, even when you spend a little bit of time with them. Uh, how did you sort of, what did you take away from your, your time with them? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the public sees this really tall guy because he's six foot seven in a suit on their TV screens every night in the news and talking about really boring issues, or serious issues, you know, like auto insurance reform and transnational money laundering and kind of speaking in that dry lawyerly way. But uh, he's got two little kids at home, uh, a three-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And when he's at home, he's very much kind of that sort of goofy, energetic dad character that you might not associate with this serious politician. So he's, when I was there and I, and I wrote in this profile, you know, he's wearing a tiara with his daughter and doing tea parties in the morning and talking in a pirate voice and making pancakes for breakfast and that type of thing. So he, he's kind of got this, uh, this, other side to him that I don't think the public sees very much. And to be fair, you know, a lot of politicians have trouble showing the family side. Some of them choose not to because it's a toxic uh, environment these days in politics to involve your family. But he's he's stepping into these big shoes of John Horgan, the most popular premier we've had in, you know, probably 40, 50 years consistently. And he's uh, he's trying to show different parts of himself that round him out a bit as a human being and, and a lot less... Uh, uh, as this uh, ICBC lawyer robot guy. Uh, does his uh, wife, his partner, uh, sort of understand, and I guess both of them collectively understand what they're about to walk into? Because it's one thing to be an MLA and a cabinet minister, and then to be premier, um, the profile uh, increases significantly. But there are also challenges uh, on, on the family as well. I mean, do they have a sense of what they're about to walk into? Yeah, well, his wife, Kaylee, who's 38, you know, I wrote in the profile, she's uh, smarter, funnier, more ambitious and makes more money than he does because she's a family <laughs> doctor. So that keeps him humble, I think, um, you know, as a married to a family doctor who's saving lives every day, uh, even when you're premier. And I think they are aware that something is about to change. David Eby, you know, if you chronicle his life, and, and I've done a couple profiles of him over the years, he was an activist in the downtown east side, uh, Pivot Legal Society and the Civil Liberties uh, Association, and he burnt out. He was this kind of tall guy who wrote manuals and how to sue the police and how to protest, and he, he burned himself out there working all the time. He got divorced. He kind of was unhealthy, and he built his life kind of back together 
running for the NDP, winning uh, against Christy Clark in the 2013 election, knocking the premier off, winning that riding. And he, he found Kaylee, his wife, and he's gone on to become a dad. And he's sort of he has mellowed, as I put it, over the years into a different figure who is a little bit less politically ambitious than he used to be, but more he, he's always been the premier in waiting that everyone's kind of uh, pegged for that job. So they all know that he's that this is about to change their lives. But he is also very good at compartmentalizing, and I've watched him do this. He keeps all of his work materials at home in a tiny box under the kitchen counter. He has his phone off and away from him for large periods of the day when he's at home. He's just not reachable because he's spending time with his kids. And he knows, because he's gone through ups and downs, how he needs to keep that balance, that healthy balance in his life. And it's uh, that question of how he does that as premier, I think, is is worrying the family a little bit. But they're also pretty confident that he, for five years, has been a high-functioning cabinet minister and, and been able to do it, too. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of changing. They're not quite sure how, but they're certainly aware that, that they've got to keep an eye on that. Next week uh, is the final week of the legislative session. Uh, Mr. Eby is expected to bring in, I think, two pieces of legislation. What, what can we expect uh, in regards to uh, that transpiring in, uh, next week? Well, I think we're going to hear news from him as he's sworn in. I think, uh, and I'm expecting to see him kind of, uh, you know, jump out of the gate, be shot out of the cannon of uh, BC politics uh, with probably using his speech and his media availability at his swearing in to start talking about what he's going to do and make announcements. And then you're right. He transitions a, a couple days later into the legislature for his first day. We, we expect a housing bill. It's a possibility that there's other legislation. You know, he's got a, he's mentioned crime. There's been a lot of uh, talk here about whether the government could artfully issue a directive to crown prosecutors, even about prolific offenders, even though they've said that doing that might um, not be constitutional. So, we're waiting to see if that happens. And, and then he's going to drop this legislation and jump into the House. He's only got four days left, and it's going to turn into a bit of a, a fight here to, to pass whatever he's brought in. But um, he's been dubbed the man of action by his supporters, and there's a lot of expectation, of him, quite a high bar, that he starts on Friday, on tomorrow, uh, hitting the ground running and, and lobbing some big swing solutions for health care and crime and other issues. I mean, he's going to have to push this stuff through. As you said, there's four days left. I mean, you introduced the, the legislation on Monday. You, you're just going to have to jam it through. And there'll be a lot of, uh, I'm sure, complaints from the opposition and, and other activist groups. But he's hitting the ground running, as you say. Yeah, I mean, look, like, the, you know, the NDP could extend the legislature if they wanted. They're going to use their majority to ram it through, and they're going to try and embarrass the Liberals by saying, you don't want to vote in favor of our housing legislation, which is not really the issue. I think the issue is whether it should be debated and analyzed in the House. But that's what you got a majority government for, is in some ways, is to flex and do what you want, and he will do what he wants and push it all through. And uh, even if it's a scramble, I have no doubt he will get what he wants out of the first week and the last week. Uh, of this session. It will not be boring under David EBS Premier, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Rob. Okay, anytime. Take uh, care. Every year, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and Alternatives publishes a living wage report that calculates the hourly wage two parents need to make to support a family of four. And that would include food, shelter, childcare, and other essentials that would have to be covered. Uh, in a family budget. All of you out there listening know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, this year's 
living wage uh, that is required to live in Vancouver has gone up a whopping 17%. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Anastasia French, a provincial manager for Living Wage for Families BC. Anastasia, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I know we we spend uh, a lot of time on this show and on many of our talk shows here talking about cost of living and inflation, but were you expecting to see such a large jump this year? I think we, we all knew that the living wage was going to go up. I think all of us have seen how expensive it, life is whenever we go to the grocery store or we put more gas in our cars or anything like that. Um, but I think we weren't probably expecting it to go up by 17%, which is higher than the rate of inflation. And that's largely because actually the costs, inflation measures a lot of things, but what we're measuring is what's in the budget for a low-income worker. And those those costs have gone up even higher than, than inflation has. So... Uh Twenty-four dollars and two cents is what it, what it takes for each parent uh, to earn uh, per hour, uh, or roughly about forty-three thousand dollars annually, in order to meet the most basic cost of raising two kids. Is that that's about that's the right number. Twenty-four dollars and two cents per hour. Twenty-four twenty-four dollars and eight cents. Eight so cents. Eight much. cents. Okay. Um, and I'm seeing here that in Victoria, it's actually twenty-four dollars and twenty-nine cents. Why is Victoria more expensive uh, than uh, than Vancouver? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. It's because, so traditionally, Vancouver has always been the most expensive place to live because Mm -hmm. primarily because of how much it costs to rent. And it's definitely not that life has got more affordable for Metro Vancouver families. It's just that now it costs the same amount to rent in Victoria as it does in Vancouver. But what is more expensive in Victoria is the cost of food. And I think it's the additional cost of trying to get food over to the island that has really has made, meant that Victoria overtakes Vancouver as the biggest, the most expensive city in BC. Uh, if you take out this past year, what have the increases generally been? Are they about a dollar increase per year, a little less? Uh, rather than uh, Right now, it looks like like the the living the cost of living went up four dollars extra per hour since last year. What do the usual increases look like? We usually um, tell employers that they should budget maybe two or three percent um, increases. There was one year where actually the living wage went down because of all of the government investments that really helped um, families with children, and that was in uh, 2018. It was actually at its peak, um, and then it went down in 2019, and then uh, it's only now has it three years later it's completely overtaken that figure, and that is because of just how much more expensive it is to both get food in the grocery stores and also to rent. And in particular with rental, it's for those people who have to move whether that's because they've been evicted or maybe they've just moved to the city or for whatever reason, they're paying 10 to 20% more in rent than those people who, who kind of get to stay in their apartments and kind of can benefit from the rent control measures that are currently in place. Uh, currently, um, with your study, what uh, are we paying for groceries? How much of an increase have we seen there? Um, so we've seen a 17% increase in the cost of groceries. Um, and I think we're now, we budget about $1,100 a month for a family of four to pay for groceries. So it's gone up a, a little bit, uh, or 100, I think looking, looking here, it's gone up an average of about $161 over the course of a year to, just as you say, to $1,100. Um, let's talk a little bit about the minimum wage. I think it's $15.65 at this, at this point. There was a lot of debate. Uh, when it was brought in uh, by the Minister of Labour, uh, Harry Baines. Um, what would you like to see done? Because you're going to have employers, uh, small business owners, the restaurant industry saying, look, we have had a significant increase in regards to the minimum wage. We cannot continue because we're already having difficulty as it is in a in sort of a, in a COVID environment, a post-COVID environment. What would your organization like to see based on your report? Well, I think there's this, this, this sort of a discussion to, that we want to have with um, living wage employers who are already paying above and beyond, and now suddenly they're, pay, they're going from paying 2052 to, to 
uh, to 24.08. And I, I know that's a significant hike for those employers, but also um, that employers have told us that they've actually already been increasing wages to, to $25 an hour because they've been really struggling to hire. That's for some employers. Um, for other employers who are listening and they're not quite, they're not quite at 24, they're not at $20 an hour yet. What I'd say is to, to do what you can because it makes business sense to make sure that your staff are well looked after and can, can afford to live in the communities that you're operating in. Um, cause it, it helps, uh, reduce retention, um, sorry, increase retention, um, help with recruitment, uh, increases morale. Um, it really kind of, it, it makes business sense as well as, um, as well as moral sense. Uh, and then there are some employers who, who, who probably, who do need that pushing from government to get there. Um, and I think it's really important that people can afford to, to pay for rent and to pay for food. And these are really just the essentials in a family budget. And there's an $8 an hour gap now between that minimum wage and actually what people need to live on. Um, and the government have, they have said they're going to increase the minimum wage in line with inflation, which is helpful, but that's, that's, that's six percent this year, not not the seventeen percent, which actually low wage work the additional costs that low wage workers are facing. Uh, do you have a number for what it costs per hour for for a similar family in Toronto or Calgary? I'm just curious. Yeah, so the living wage for Calgary is twenty one dollars and forty nine cents an hour, and the living wage for Greater Toronto for the GTA is twenty three fifteen. So I think it's important to note that that's not just Toronto; that's also Mississauga. So that would be the equivalent of us including like the Fraser Valley in our in the Metro Vancouver calculations. And I think there's a difference in kind of costs that you have in the big city as you do in kind of Abbotsford and Chilliwack, and their living wage is a lot lower. So Vancouver is the most expensive uh, in Canada. Well, Victoria. Well, Victoria. Victoria, sorry. Yeah, Victoria. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so used to saying Vancouver year <laughs> I know, after year. I know, year. but this time it's now Victoria. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, the highest living wage that we calculated was for the village of Dajingit in Haida Gwaii. Um, but that takes into account the fact that when you live somewhere that remote, there's additional costs that you have in terms of ferries and stuff like that. But also food is far more expensive on Haida Gwaii than it is in other parts of the province. Did you include Kelowna and, and other parts of the, the, the interior and the north at all in regards to the study? We did. The living wage for Kelowna is $22.88 an hour. Um, so it's just um, a bit below, uh, well, a couple of dollars below Victoria. The other interesting thing we found was that the, the higher the higher other communities are all those resort towns. So the second highest living wage is Golden. Uh, Revelstoke is, pre- is pretty high, as is Cerny. And I think that, that points to the housing shortage that lots of them face and also the childcare shortage and how much more expensive childcare is in those resort communities. Well, I mean, but, you know, there was a time where you moved to small town BC for uh, a better quality of living. You're paying less for housing. But as you say... There's the childcare challenges and housing challenges as well. When you go to places like the Kootenays interior, I mean, it's, it's not just a Vancouver issue. It's, it is quite well, fascinating, you know? Yeah, and the other thing that's also fascinating is we, we, we tweaked our methodology for rural areas. So mm-hmm. we assume in Metro Vancouver and Victoria and urban areas that a family has a car, a, a used, one used car and a transit pass. But what we heard from our rural areas is that you can't get by on the transit. Either there is no transit or if there is a transit, it doesn't work on Sundays. So we've actually adapted the methodology for rural areas to include the, the cost of two used cars. And so that's pushed up their living wages slightly. Um, and so if actually government was to invest in making more affordable transit in those rural areas, it would help lower costs. Uh, for families and also for those employers who want to pay a living wage. I mean, this, I, you can't answer this question, but I want to ask it anyway. How do we get out of this? And beyond just them, you know, raising minimum wage. I mean, I, I don't know how we get out of this issue. I mean, and we can't continue to live like this. You know, three or four years from now, and I speak to young people, even even in this office, 
who rent in and around Vancouver uh, work here with me and how difficult it is just to find a place to live. Never mind if you do find a place, you're paying $2,324, even $2,500 a month for a, a one-bedroom apartment. I mean, at what point do we just – we have to walk away and we can't sustain this as an economy, um, as just a society. Well, but I think there is stuff that government can do. And we've seen that with childcare. So childcare used to be the second most expensive item in the family budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of government investments and because of government commitment and um, drive and all of that, the cost of childcare now has gone down. Uh, it only went up by 1% this year. So compare that to the increases we've seen in all the other budget items. And childcare is now the third most expensive item in the family budget. What we want is government to, to take that passion, that commitment, everything that they've done on childcare and turn to making housing more affordable. David Eby has suggested some ideas of things that he's going to do when, in premier, with, when he's premier and they hopefully will be really positive but I think that there's, there's more that can be done to both scale up the building of affordable housing, uh, looking at things like zoning and stuff like that, that will take time mm-hmm. so there's also things that should be done immediately so as well as the investments in more affordable housing which should happen, absolutely there are things like for example rent control where it's tied to the unit rather than the individual because what we found is that the reason the living wage has gone up by 17% for housing this year is because um, as soon as you have to move suddenly your rent goes up by 10-20% um, and often people are being evicted or rent evicted because the landlord wants to put the rent up and they shouldn't be doing that but there are ways around it um, and so what we want is that the rent control comes in and it's tied to the unit so that regardless of if it's an existing tenant or it's a new tenant actually the rent only goes up by 2-3% every year rather than the 10-20% that happens as soon as you're having to look now. Anastasia thank you so much for your time really appreciate it. Thank you. It's more than a month until Christmas, of course, but jingle bells are turning to alarm bells as fresh Christmas trees may be in short supply this year. Joining us to talk about this is Paul Huskin, president of the BC Christmas Tree Association. Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Jazz. So walk me through here. Uh, I grew up in the interior. My dad was in the forest business, so I, I'm, I grew up surrounded by trees. So when I hear about a shortage of trees in, in British Columbia, I get very, um, very concerned. Walk me through some of the challenges um, you, you and your organization, the BC Christmas Tree Association, are seeing uh, this year here in British Columbia. Yeah. Well, I'm going to preface uh, what I'm going to say by right now I'm sitting here looking at Vetter Mountain, and I'm looking at hundreds and thousands of uh, trees out there, and it's hard to believe that we can possibly have a Christmas tree shortage in British Columbia, but that's the simple reality is there is a chronic shortage because um, there isn't enough farmland here to, um, well, we have lots of farmland, but they're not making any more. But uh, there's a, you know, with the prohibitive cost of farmland, there is uh, a shortage of trees this year and It'll continue to be that way until we figure out how to grow more trees. So uh, right now, now how much of the um, how much of this has been impacted just by extreme weather, weather over the last year or so? Yeah, well, the last two years have been a challenge for sure for Christmas tree growers. I would say though that this year was is not as bad as last year. I mean, last year was exceptional. We had the heat dome in the summer, and then we had um, flooding in the, in the November. And so between those two things. Uh, it was a difficult time to be a farmer of any kind, and particularly a Christmas tree farmer. This year we've fared much better. Um, the uh, late-season drought has impacted trees, um, more so young trees, so uh, there's higher mortality among younger trees. Uh, I have a field in Langley, mm-hmm. and uh, we had 40% losses of seedlings in that field, where 
typically anything more than 5% loss is considered uh, problematic. So, but it, it impacted young trees, so it won't impact the, um, the availability of trees on the market this fall because they're you know, seven, eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so part of it is, of course, the, the heat dome, as you said, but part of it is also just uh, demographics here. My understanding is there were probably about 500 Christmas tree farms in British Columbia a decade ago, and now we're down to, correct me if I'm wrong here, about 400, so about a 20% reduction? Yeah, that could be the case. In our association, we we, we have 100 members, mm-hmm. So I know there are people growing trees outside of our our organization, the BC Christmas Tree Association. So actually, I think your number is probably a little bit high. I think there's probably fewer than 400. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, how long does it take to grow a Christmas tree to get it to the point where you're able to sell it at your lot? Yeah, well, it depends a bit on species. So if everything is optimal, a Douglas fir you can get from a seedling to a marketable tree of six or seven feet in four to five years. That's in in the Fraser Valley. Whereas another um, species, like say a noble fir or a Nordman, you're looking at eight to nine years. Oh, wow. So So you don't have to delay gratification for a long time. (laughs) That's a lot of capital you've got to be spending too and just the care and everything else that comes with that. Now, with as I was saying, we've gone from 500 farms down to 400, and as you say, there may be there are probably less than four hundred now. Yep. Is it just a case of uh, of owners uh, getting older, retiring, and saying, "Look, it's time uh, for for us to to just enjoy life and and and, and do other things"? Uh, and it's that that profession, that individual or that farmer leaving the Christmas tree business is gone, and that person is not being replaced by a younger farmer coming up. There's um, definitely truth to that. I know of a lot of people who have you know, sold their farms in recent years who have retired. And um, the younger generation isn't, um, is choosing not to become farmers. And I think it's in part because they need to see a pathway to be able to make it possible, uh, you know, given the economics of land prices and also the fact that you've got to wait for so long to get a return on the investment. Uh, So where do we get our trees? If there's a shortage now, even this year, where would you get uh, extra trees? Would you just have to import them from other provinces? Yeah. Um, typically in the past, it's been from Washington and Oregon. I'm talking like a decade or more ago. Wow. Uh, but now with the disparity in the dollars, that's you know not happening as much. Plus, there's fewer trees being planted in Washington and Oregon than before, so they have the same issues that we're having. And then the other option is eastern Canada. And that's where probably more and more trees are coming from. Quebec is a massive producer of Christmas trees. Um, but then there's the transportation issues. And, of course, with the uh, price of fuel these days, um, that becomes problematic, too. Uh, how much of an impact uh, are, does Canadian Tire, Home Depot, all these stores, Costco, that sell these pre-lit trees? I mean, has that impacted people getting out of the business as well, just in regards to demand, too? You know, I don't really think so, because actually there's been a return to to, uh, as people think about their impact of their carbon footprint, mm-hmm. uh, especially a uh, younger generation being more aware of that. Um, I think there's been a return to um, families coming and buying real trees. I mean, on our farm, we got lots of young families, and, uh, you know, they're very conscious about not buying a petroleum product from offshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your advice to our listeners today that if you want a, a live Christmas tree, a fresh Christmas tree, uh, 
get out there early, I guess, is probably the best advice. Yeah, that's that's always every year. I mean, it's a chronic issue, and so it's, the problem's not going to go away each year. But, um, yeah, we need more people in, in the business. And I've just written this past week a letter to the Agriculture Minister, Lana Popham, asking for an audience and for some support because we have to have the solution to the shortage is to produce more Christmas trees in the province. And the only way I can see it happening is if we can use Crown land and have long-term leases on it. Whether wow. that's right-of-ways or, you know, 10 years. Wow. I mean, there you go. you got to write a letter to the Agriculture Minister. It is that structural and that big of a challenge. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time, my friend. And I know it's early, and if I don't talk to you, Merry Christmas to you as yeah. well. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you too, John. Well, doctors once told North Delta's Kyle O'Reilly that a career in sports entertainment would be impossible because of diabetes. Uh, O'Reilly uh, could have let uh, his diabetes put an end to his pro wrestling aspirations years back, but fans were thankful that didn't happen. O'Reilly started his professional uh, wrestling career uh, wrestling in, uh, in independent circuits and eventually making it all the way to the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. O'Reilly currently works in the All Elite, all elite Wrestling and joins us now to talk about living with type 1 diabetes. Carl, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah I was really, very much looking forward to this uh, conversation uh, today. Let's start talking a little bit about your wrestling career first. How did you uh, get interested in wrestling? Um, it was something that had captured my attention and imagination as an adolescent. I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I really fell in love with wrestling. And it's just something that I guess I loved it up until graduating from high school. I joined a wrestling school uh, local in Surrey, B.C., started training there and, and cutting my teeth on the local independent scene. And then it, it just grew from there. Opportunities came, started to travel more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when were you first diagnosed with uh, a type one diabetes? Like right around that time, um, during wrestling school, wrestling training, you know, right around the time I started having my first matches is uh, when I got diagnosed. And what went through your mind when you were first diagnosed? Um, I mean, it was a confusing and tough time. I mean, I knew something was definitely up. There was a lot of signs and symptoms that I was showing. I was, had gotten pretty ill. Um, and then I went to a doctor to get a physical for a wrestling license down in Washington State so I could start wrestling down there. And then out of the physical, yeah, they're like, oh, wow, things are, aren't looking too good here. And, and I was like, diagnosed on the spot. How does it impact... And at that point, did it impact how you wrestled or how you managed uh, your training? Yeah, I mean, fortunately for me, the diagnosis came while I was already going through this growth as a pro wrestler. So there was already a lot on my plate and that I was dealing with on top of it. So it's it's I learned how to control my diabetes while experiencing this. So it kind of just help me grasp everything and understand everything. That said, it still is very difficult because you travel a lot in the wrestling industry. Um, you're, you know, sometimes the meals, you never know where they're going to come or you're up really late and you get this huge adrenaline dump from performing in the ring. And that also has, um, you know, that also reacts in the body in strange ways, like the stress and the cortisol and definitely affects the diabetes. So it doesn't make, is easy per mm-hmm. se. And does it impact how you train? Um, 
Not really. I mean, I, I always have trained really hard. I love kickboxing and jujitsu and of course weight training and cardio and stuff like that. I mean, with diabetes, having a, a solid fitness regimen is part of controlling this disease. So it, it definitely helps in that regard. In regards to uh, your wrestling, how would you describe your style in the ring and, and as, as a character? Um, I'd say my style is a very grounded, realistic style. Um, for one, I'm afraid of heights. So going to the top rope and, and doing something impressive off the top was never really in my forte or in my wheelhouse. I just felt a lot more comfortable ground and having a sort of a technical grappling sort of catch wrestling slash jujitsu sort of influence on my style with a lot of strikes and um, submission wrestling. That's that's what I always found really interesting about wrestling, and that's kind of how I patterned my style. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were young, as you said, and when and you first saw wrestling, you fell in love with wrestling, was there a particular uh, wrestler that you really liked that sort of caught your imagination, your attention? I mean, being a kid from Canada, the Hart family always mm-hmm. you know, captured my imagination. Brett and Owen, I, I really love those guys, as well as the British Bulldog. And, and Canada has such a, a strong lineage of wrestlers throughout the years. And, uh, and I was always, um, you know, really enjoyed the Canadian wrestlers. And um, yeah, and uh, that's kind of sort of how I patterned my style, more technical and ground based. Mm-hmm. Uh, where what is the state of wrestling in Canada today? I'm, I'm curious. I know we, when you think professional wrestling, you think WWE, um, but uh, we've done a few segments here. Uh, how would you describe sort of the BC or Western Canadian um, wrestling scene? Because these things can always come and go. Where how would you describe it today and now? To be honest, it's been a while since I've wrestled in BC or in Canada. Um, not since getting hired by WWE in 2017 had I, had I wrestled in BC, but there is such a strong independent circuit there. I know there is uh, a few new companies that are starting up and, and getting some momentum. Um, I know NEW is, is a notable one that has done well. I think they're running the Commodore pretty regular and uh, just across Canada in general, the, the wrestling scene seems to be blowing up again. Wrestling is almost cool again, and um, there seems to be a lot more opportunities for guys and girls to cut their teeth at a local level and, um, yeah, and, and to gain more experience to head out and hopefully wrestle for one of the big companies, whether that's uh, WWE or where I'm at now, uh, AEW, All Elite Wrestling. What, is, what sustains professional wrestling? Because, you know, as you say, things can ebb and flow sometimes. Uh, but it, it, there's always there's always a sort of a core audience or a base audience that really loves professional wrestling. I've gone to uh, a show at the uh, at uh, Rogers Arena many years ago with uh, coworkers uh, one evening. We had a lot of fun, uh, but but it is a, a sort of a core audience that is just absolutely rabid. What is it about um, professional wrestling that 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 just attracts and uh, keeps that base of, of support? It's really hard to put your finger on. Um, I think it's something that people just kind of fall in love with and they can relate to it. It's very simple storytelling. There's a good guy and a bad guy or a, a good girl and a bad girl and you cheer for the the good guy and boo the bad guy. But it's not always that simple. There's touches of gray here and there. And I think people just get – it's like um, performance art. It's like theater 
with four sides and ropes, you know, like it's just something that I don't know, man, it's, it's the most entertaining show that I've ever experienced is going to a lot. And that's the, the, the place to see wrestling, especially for the first times to see a live wrestling show. There's really, you can't put your finger on what it is thing magical about it. And whether it's the sound of the bodies hitting the mat and the ooh and the ah of the crowd and the crowds participating one, two, Oh, like it's just something about it. Um, it's really hard to figure out what it is. I don't know why I love it so much, but you know, it's, it's just, it's a really cool and unique art form. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've done a, a great job navigating, not only um, the sport itself, but now na- navigating it with, uh, you know, dealing with uh, diabetes as well. Are there other wrestlers I'm curious that you know that that have uh, that deal with similar situation that you do that you have to deal with? Um, there was a, a couple that I've known for the years, but I'm not sure if they're still wrestling. Um, certainly not at the level that I'm at now. There's no other type one diabetics, but I'm hopefully I can act as you know a, some inspiration for someone who does have type one diabetes and, and does want to pursue wrestling. They can look at me and, and say, you know, maybe I can do it too. And if, if that's the case, then everything that I've done, all this sacrifice has been worthwhile just to show that there is no limitations to this disease. Kyle, uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, Jess. Change is constant, it is often said, and a combination of fast-moving and emerging emerging trends can quickly reshape the way we work and live. Think of the impact of technology or even a pandemic like COVID. Well, a new show is launching on Global BC on November 19th called Trending. It'll look at stories, people, and organizations that impact where we live. And it's hosted by a very familiar face. And we're joined by her now, Jill Cobb, of course, is host of Trending and, of course, a former Global BC anchor and news director. Hello, Jill. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. Good to hear your voice. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Thank you. And it's lovely to hear your voice. And I heard John McComb's voice there, too. So. <laughs> exactly. Some things never change here. We're all, we're, we're all familiar uh, voices, that's for sure. Well, let's touch on exactly. this great new project of yours, Trending. Tell me a little bit about uh, this program. It's a wonderful opportunity to take a look at things that are trending. As you mentioned, change is constant and so many advances being made um, in technology and science just all over the place. And so there are so many stories out there that don't get onto a newscast, but they're worth telling. And so that's what we're we're doing in this space is telling these really unique stories. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, uh, so if I'm, when I think about stories, uh, is it going to be specific to uh, communities here in the Lower Mainland, or are you also potentially traveling around BC as well? Well, there certainly is uh, potential to travel. Um, the first episode that's coming up, as you mentioned, on November 19th, we did go to Harrison Hot Springs, and I don't know if you know this, because I didn't know this, and I was a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know it. Um, Harrison Hot Springs has had Sasquatch sightings. And we speak to uh, one of the uh, foremost experts on Sasquatch in Canada, um, in Harrison Hot Springs. There's a Sasquatch museum there. Um, and so along with all the wonderful touristy things to do, um, the springs, the hotels, that kind of thing, the lake, um, there's this neat opportunity to learn about Sasquatch or 
maybe even see a Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, you know, you raise a very good point. We have news is everywhere. And uh, one of the great things about news and technology is that it's allowed the world to get smaller. But we are inundated with so much information now. We sometimes get disconnected from the interesting and most importantly, the local. And I think uh, this program specifically kind of touches on that. And you've talked a little bit about uh, Harrison. Uh, and I think you had mentioned uh, as well that you'll be looking uh, talking to the Burnaby Hospital Foundation as well. A lot of these local things that we just sort of take for granted, but there's lots of people, organizations behind them that actually help build a thriving community. For sure, so many things. Uh, we do speak with the CEO of the Burnaby Hospital Foundation, Christy James. The hospital itself is undergoing a major change right now. So the foundation has launched a massive capital campaign project and they're just entering phase two as they look to raise millions of dollars to build um, a new Burnaby hospital and I think you know you and I know from years and years in news that as much as governments fund hospitals they really only fund to their ability to fund and it takes so much more money uh, to create a hospital that a community needs so that's the um, that's what the campaign is all about and we'll talk to Christy about how a hospital foundation operates and and its role within the community as it supports the hospital. As well, we're going to learn more about hearing aids, and you and I both know our dear friend and former colleague Tony Parsons did a whole series of advertisements uh, for hearing aids, and I need them myself now <laughs> because <laughs> of my age and having had that earpiece in my ear as a news anchor uh, for many years, but there's been such technology um, and technological advances in hearing aids. So it's these kind of stories, and as well, we take a look at... Um, what's going on in the world of fireplaces and i know it sounds kind of like that might be a light kind of fluffy story it's quite fascinating uh, what they've come up with in terms of how indoor fireplaces look and feel and save energy and that's a big thing of course that everybody's looking at as as we try to become more and more green every day yeah it's you know what we 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 spend so much time talking about uh you know uh, blockades and and uh, energy and all that but it's these little things when you talk about the fireplace or how we heat our home that collectively when it starts impacting you know uh, five hundred thousand condos and townhouses and, and single family homes that you can actually have a huge impact on the environment it's these little things that uh, we sometimes take for granted that uh, that can have such an impact uh, on our environment um uh, I, for sure I've got to ask you, you know, uh, someone like yourself who um, has worked in the business for well, over three decades, um, every day you wake up and you're immersed by news uh, and information. Uh, you took a little break from the news world, from uh, TV world. Uh, do you view news differently now? Like just to, uh, you're, I know you're a mom, uh, you're, you're, you have a busy life, but do you view news a little differently now when you sort of step out of the news business for a little while? I think it's inevitable. I think you do. When you're immersed, as you say, in it, and that is the perfect word, word, word it's just everything, and everything is happening quickly and around you. And I marvel um, at really what a great job both NW and, and Global are continuing to do because it is difficult to cover absolutely everything that's going on. Um, and, yeah, I, you kind of tend to step back a little bit and, and take a broader approach to it and get less into the minutiae. So, you know, this show for me is a great opportunity 
community. It's going to be uh, one show per quarter of the year. So four to six shows maximum and um, a really interesting way to, to meet some new people around British Columbia and, and, um, and hear their stories and share their stories. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I really appreciate it. Great to hear your voice. And so once again, Trending, the show is called Trending and it'll be airing this Saturday, November uh, 19th, 19th. On, on Global BC. Thank you so much, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.